0: Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from beautiful Ojai, California. I am thrilled to be welcoming Jay Davenport, who is the Vice President of Development and Alumni Relations at Virginia Commonwealth University and VCU Health. Jay, welcome to the Rays Podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, so we've got a lot to cover and I cannot wait to dive into your journey, but why don't you roll back the tapes as we start here and just give us a sense of young Jay Davenport uh, and when you were evaluating your own college uh, choices and, and that path, who were you then? And, and what was top of mind? Where were you? Uh, just tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. Sure. So I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas and um, uh, most of my friends, Uh, In in Houston, we're thinking of um, uh, the University of Texas, places in Texas, and I decided I wanted to look outside of the state and and, and see what was available in the Jesuit higher education community, so I looked at five schools. I looked at uh, Santa Clara, Creighton, Xavier, Holy Cross, and Boston College, landed at Xavier, uh, and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And there, um, initially, I thought I was gonna go into law. And uh, while I was there, I got an undergraduate job in the admissions office and then um, moved into higher education. Got a master's in higher ed after Xavier and have been working in higher ed ever since.
0: So if you hadn't taken that undergraduate admissions job, decent chance we wouldn't be talking today. Just tell me a little bit about what it was Because, you know, look, to have narrowed down your college choice to five Jesuit institutions, that is a filter where a lot of, a lot of folks struggle with narrowing down that, that process. So you were laser focused. And then to have the law aspirations as well, also implies that you'd given that a lot of thought. What a pivot. What was it about that? Like, think about taking that undergraduate enrollment, enrollment admissions job. When did you know that this was maybe something for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So what, um, what transpired for me was um, I started as a tour guide and was fascinated by just the operations of the admissions office, started talking to some of the folks there, and they said, you know, they have this entire program called MORE. It was uh, Muskie's own recruitment effort, and it was a student-led organization that ran the tour guides, the overnight hosts, the ambassadors, and really were the um, student arm of the admissions office. So as I became more involved, I realized there was an entire opportunity uh, called enrollment management. And so there I started just talking to the different uh, folks in the admissions office, understanding what the uh, director of admissions did. And I thought, this is fascinating. And it really spoke to me at the time. Um, the, the numbers aspect, the, um, the business side of higher education was something that you know, I just had really not been exposed to much. And it's odd because my mom was a faculty member. And so I knew a lot about the academic um, uh, faculty side of the institution, but not as much of the business side. And it was fascinating to me.
0: Well, my, my close parallel to that is that as a, uh, a football player at Brown University, I was uh, often tasked with hosting recruits, which was the closest thing to that tour guide uh, experience. But I loved it. I shared your, your interest in it. And ultimately, it really was one of my first early sales experiences, right? When I've got uh, an 18-year-old and their parents who are evaluating different scenarios, different institutions, I just love competing. I loved helping tell the story, getting them fired up, like building trust and rapport. But also one of the things about admissions that I love, enrollment, relative to the advancement space is just... It is so time boxed. It is so compressed. We have nine month or twelve month cycles to either get somebody on board with Xavier or Brown or not. Whereas right. with the advancement space, you've got fifty years to work with at times. And so um, I, I'm just curious. Like I'm actually now thinking of people I hosted on my recruiting trip who ended up coming to Brown, and you know some of whom are still friends today. Uh, but but it, it it is just amazing to think about how much that personal engagement can matter more than the guidebooks or the pretty photos or the buildings. I mean, did you have any similar experiences where you had some wins that got you excited about that?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think it was it was uh, those precise experiences that convinced me that um, uh, it was a um, incredible career opportunity and um, that um, the personalization And at the time, and we're we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s, um, the personalization was just really starting. I mean, and so when you think about the explosion over the course of the entire 90s and what happened in the enrollment management space, it was remarkable. Um, And quite honestly, it was um, it was the period of the 90s that I was in the enrollment space. It was Ninety-nine. When I moved from enrollment management into fundraising, and it was completely by accident. Um, you know, I had this this. Uh, it was in Lake Forest Academy High School, uh, their gym, and uh, I had a fantastic meeting or you know discussion with a prospective student who was the prototypical student. She was the dream candidate, and as she left the table, I thought I had such a better conversation with her parents, who were alumni. And it was that following Monday that I called the vice president of advancement there at uh, Wittenberg where I was working at the time. And I said, I, I think I want to learn more about what happens on your side of the ledger. And, um, we had some great conversations and Chuck Dominic uh, was the person who helped me find my first fundraising job. Uh, and it was, it was surreal because I was convinced enrollment management was going to be my future. And, um, uh, Making the switch to fundraising has been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I
0: want to dive into more. Yeah, I want to, I, fair, fair enough. Fair caveat. Uh, I want to dive more into that, but I also just have to ask you mentioned 1999, and that was a moment where there's obviously incredible tech transformation. The first wave of the internet was really accelerating, dot com boom, et cetera. Uh, and while a lot of that was centered uh, in Silicon Valley or on the coast, um, I'm sure that you were starting to see the early inklings of what that would mean for the enrollment space, the higher ed space. And as we are now here in late 2020, in the midst of another massive wave of tech adoption that's been accelerated by COVID, I guess I'm just curious if you think about in 1999, in the way that you were engaging students or parents, you know, I imagine it was things like, should we be emailing people or, or how do we start, you know, becoming more systematic in that approach? Any early wins or losses or challenges that you might reflect on as we we sit here now uh, just over 20 years?
1: Absolutely. So you're going to laugh at this, especially when you think about um, uh, what this actually was. But um, we won an award at Wittenberg from the Dayton Daily News uh, for uh, innovative uh, web presence because we put our application online. And it was a nightmare for the folks uh, in the back office because it was basically just a form feed. And so people would go in and fill it all out and then it would come, you know, as a um, uh, a form feed on the on the back end. And then they would have to enter everything in. So it wasn't wasn't anything particularly, um, you know, technologically a marvel, but it allowed us to dramatically ramp up the number of folks that applied via the Internet across the country. And um. Uh, it's funny looking back that we won this great award you know, for being innovative, and um, at the time it was, but you know how far we've come since that point to now.
0: Yet in spite of all that progress, Jay, I do feel like we are still constantly wrestling with the front-end experience versus back-office constraints. You know, even as we sit here today, there is a trade off between is it worth improving the front end experience for a gift officer, for a constituent, et cetera, recognizing that you might have a form feed like, you know, Frankenstein on the back end at times. And obviously, technology has improved a lot of that. But, but I imagine that there are still some of those same concerns on the back end that you maybe heard 20 years ago.
1: I think you're right. So, I, I, you know, the, the disconnect between um, what technology can actually do for us and then um, uh, its ease of use uh, for us as professionals, I, I think that's the ongoing challenge. So um, technology in and of itself, being able to apply via the internet um, doesn't necessarily solve all of our behind the scene challenges. Um, in fact, when you think about the A treasure trove of data we have nowadays and sorting through what is the best way to use all of the data we have. I think that's the next big adventure and certainly something we're looking at here. Um, The benefit of VCU, and this is really, really interesting to me, is because we're a younger program, and I've heard this from other VPs who um, are leading younger advancement programs, we're not burdened with a lot of the uh, history and the uh, legacy decisions that have been made. So we can be more nimble in making certain adjustments, but knowing what adjustments to make is still the, uh, the challenge. And with the evolution of the technology happening at the pace that it is, um, what are the bets that are gonna pay off for the next three and five years as opposed to just help us next year?
0: Love it. Um, yeah, it's funny. One of our partners, Williams College, this uh, this year is ramping up for their 200th anniversary of their alumni association. Uh, obviously, the institution itself is is even older. But um, but yeah, that's uh, that's maybe the other end of the spectrum. So let's go back now. As you think about making that switch from the enrollment space where you're selling to uh, you know a, a student and and his or her parents, uh, and then you made that shift into development any early experiences there where you started to feel like, wow, this might be the greatest professional move that I ever made. When did you start feeling the momentum?
1: Yeah. So what was, what was fascinating is um, uh, sometimes when you make those kind of switches, you know, you arm yourself with the, um, uh, the habits that made you successful in the past. Right. And going from admissions to uh, frontline fundraising work, there's a lot of commonality, a lot of um, uh, similar skill sets that you can apply right away. And I think what happened with me was I was given list of prospect names and I would literally start at the top and work my way until I had the bottom, you know, the last person covered. And then I would contact the research office and say, I I've, I've finished this list. I'm waiting for responses. Who do I contact next? And after doing that a few times, you know, the research office starts giving you better and better lists because you're utilizing the information that they're supplying. And um, I was in the engineering college at the time at uh, Wright State University. And again, to your point, you know, it's it was the late 90s, the tech revolution. And we had a number of alumni who were doing really well out in the Silicon Valley, but also In uh, Ohio, we had a a number of alumni who were creating really, really innovative small tech companies. And um, they were in a fascinating space that um, was benefiting the institution. And I was fortunate our dean was the founding dean. And so literally every alumnus, any name that I took to him, he would say, oh, I know that person, or I helped them get their first internship or their first mentorship. And um, that is very, very powerful. And we had an incredible four-year run. Um, and uh, Jim Brandenberry was the dean at the time and a fabulous, fabulous ride. So the tech boom, uh, me plowing through names, not really knowing what I was doing officially, and then a dean who, who knew everybody. It was powerful.
0: And so after that, you um that run, you actually had an interesting pivot into, uh, into the independent school world. Is that right?
1: I did. I did. Um, uh, you know, it's funny, it, uh, shortly after 9-11, um, I, my wife and I were trying to figure out what do we want to do long term? I think a lot of people at the time were trying to reevaluate what was most important in their life and um, uh, what was um, uh, most meaningful to them. And at the time, my wife really wanted to be closer to her family, they lived in Wisconsin. And so we started exploring different opportunities and it just so happened that there was um, a Catholic high school in Wisconsin that was looking for somebody with um, uh, admissions and fundraising background to help them uh, with one of their high schools. And so I threw my hat in the ring and uh, was hired. It was a fascinating uh, job, but one I quickly realized I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, I wanted to get back into the higher education space, but um, they needed me for a period of time. And um, I I did that, Uh, learned a lot about um, the independent school setting. I learned a lot about myself, what I liked, what I didn't like. Um, And quite honestly, it was kind of the foundations of being a really, really good leader uh, because admittedly I made many, many mistakes.
0: Well, without delving into it um, too much, but you know, we do have folks who are listening today that are in the ind- independent school world. Mm-hmm. We have folks that have uh, been in the independent school world, moved into higher ed, or maybe higher ed folks that are considering the move. So recognizing what's right for one person isn't going to be right for everybody else. What were some of the general themes when you think about independent school versus wanting to be um, you know, in, in the kind of large national university advancement leadership space? What are the pros and cons?
1: Yeah, that's a great, so um, uh, one of the things right now, I actually serve on the board of an independent school here in Richmond, Virginia, so the Benedictine Schools of Richmond, and um, uh, our boys, we have three boys, um, they've all gone through uh, independent schools, so we are a a big believer in and have a high respect for them. Um, The challenging uh, aspect that I was faced is a school that had an external crisis and went from an enrollment of 1100 down to 800. And those present themselves with very, very large budget uh, challenges and then um, community challenges. So spending time to rebuild the admissions and the fundraising platform in that kind of um, environment um, while being at the institution every day from seven in the morning till you know the basketball game or the, the play ended at the end of the night um, presented itself with very, very long uh, days. And um, it, was, it, was, um, it was an interesting period in my life. Um, it also highlighted for me that I liked so much more spending time on the fundraising aspect of the, of the job, um, dealing with the, the folks uh, on those kind of projects and the strategy uh, for those projects. And that's what led me to believe you know, moving back into higher ed in some capacity it was going to be um, uh, my next adventure.
0: Look, I think um, it, it sounds like if you hadn't taken that leap and hadn't gone down a path that wasn't the right fit, uh, it might not have given you as much conviction and confidence to really dive back into higher ed and just make a run at it, knowing what it was you really did appreciate and didn't. So sometimes you don't know what you got till it's gone. And it sounds like that was a little bit of your experience. And then you had an opportunity to really dive in at Rice, at Wake Forest, we've talked a bit in the past about some of those experiences where you really were able to build your advancement leadership um, experience, uh, get more and more wins under your belt from a development perspective. When you think about the time at Rice and uh, Wake Forest, you know, what are your fondest memories and who are the people? Because I know you had some specific mentors uh, that really uh, helped shape you during those periods uh, that stand out to you. Absolutely.
1: So, um, you know, going going to Rice um, was wonderful on a couple of fronts. One, it it put me back to my hometown of Houston, and I loved uh, being able to return um, uh, to my hometown community. And then Rice is just a fantastic institution, wonderful advancement operation. And it was the first place where I worked where I thought this is the big leagues. This is what advancement work is really all about. And uh, at the time, uh, the vice president there was Darrell Zeidenstein, fabulous leader, uh, did a fantastic job um, when when I was there, and really helped me assess um, what a great vice president can do for an organization and then uh, what skill sets I had that were similar in that vein and then what I could do if I wanted to become a vice president one day. And so when I was at Rice, the... um, Uh, output, the uh, diligence, the productivity of the fundraising staff was on a much, much more elevated par. Um, The alumni were so committed uh, to the institution, and we had a very, very clear direction uh, from the leadership of where the fundraising operation should move and what exactly we were advancing. So what was the mission of the institution that we were advancing and supporting and then what message were we sharing with um, external audiences? It was, it was a, a wonderful time. Uh, I, I learned so much and really envisioned myself being there for a very, very long period of time. And then as happens, um, an opportunity at Wake Forest presented itself. And um, uh, there was an opportunity to take what I had learned at all of those previous places and help build a fundraising team. And, uh,
0: hey, Jay, that was a- hey, Jay, before we dive into the Wake Forest, you just said something that I want to press on because uh, you said something along the lines of maybe with Darrow or with the Rice team. It helped you understand what a great vice president can do. And that's something I'd like to press on a bit because uh, I think about it a lot in, in many instances in higher ed. Um, we have institutions that have been around for a long time, a lot of culture, a lot of tradition, a lot of things that no individual could change. But at the same time, whether it's in college football or college presidents. And I think in the advancement space as well, leadership really matters, right? Rice is not just rice. VCU is not just VCU. It is a collective of individual leaders who are driving results or not, who are building their own flavor of the culture or not. And so what is it, I guess, when you think about, cause there's certain things a VB can't do, can't control. Um, but maybe there are things where you've just observed you can really make your mark, either you personally or what you saw from Daryl. What stands out? Yeah,
1: two big things um, left an indelible marks on me. The first was the formation of his leadership team, um, who he surrounded himself with to lead key components, and then uh, the caliber of those leaders. Uh, and, and it was really, really impressive. And it, it meant that he could spend more of his time working on the strategy and the overall operations supporting the president, because he had really, really talented individuals in key spots who who got those uh, those tasks done regularly. The other piece was Daryl did a fantastic job of engaging um, mid managers and bringing ideas from um, around the entire division to the forefront so that uh, there was a great pulse of what was working, what was not. And then uh, what were things that managers and individuals who might be in, sm- in charge of smaller teams, what ideas they could bring to the table that were going to move the organization forward? And that um, um, expansive view um, really, it, it helped me. I was able to uh, pitch some ideas, which I thought would be helpful. Um, but at the same time, it, it helped me learn that there were great ideas bubbling all over the organization and um uh, to this day i use a variant of that to to um uh, form strategy
0: i love it i mean those are principles it's not an advancement principle that's just a management leadership principle and i was just listening to another uh, podcast and uh around management leadership and they were talking about this idea of instead of asking how can we do insert goal or objective etc start asking who can do it who right. can do this and uh, really, that tension of, in a certain regard, um, as the leader, trying to own or or do as little as you can, and really more focus on empowering others who can be more focused, specialize and and get things done with, um, you know, with with fewer distractions, et cetera. It sounds like that was a part of the uh, part of the deal at, at at Rice. But that being said, you made the move to West For- uh, to Wake Forest, feeling like. It was your turn to really step up and and start um, putting some of those principles in place in a uh, increasing leadership role, in particular around the campaign.
1: Oh, absolutely! And and one of the things that was um, uh, was wonderful is 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 first being able to uh, focus on um, building the college fundraising program. So eighty percent of their students at Wake Forest are. Um, students of the Wake Forest College, the um, Arts and Sciences Division. And so um, working on that project first was a lot of fun. And um, it was taking the best practices and principles of Rice and then applying it to um, one of the great schools in the ACC just with um, a younger development program at that time. And then uh, I had the good fortune about every two years um, was um, given a new task and, and new responsibility. And so over eight years, I really was able to see a huge variance of the capital campaign, the needs uh, going from the college, merging the college and the regional teams together, um, working on the campaign, and then working on uh, campaign and, and fundraising strategy after that. And It really solidified for me um, the power of great leadership uh, from the top, the president, the vice president, and then also um, how you uh, motivate and select teams. And then how you take some of these huge uh, institutional ambitions and activate them into uh, real solutions and uh, how you provide resources for great students, great faculty, and um, a really, really ambitious administration.
0: And as a bit of background, you joined Wake Forest in June of 2010 and were there for uh, about eight years. And I guess as we think about June of 2010, that's right when I was graduating from business school, Evertrue was about two months old. Um, it was a tough time. I mean, the financial crisis was still in full swing. We were experiencing you know, as much uh, economic dislocation as we're experiencing right now. It was much different then than it is uh, right now. But what was it like kind of recognizing you probably had quite a bit of exposure to the finance community and uh, people that had been really affected by the real estate uh, downturns and so forth, but at the same time getting out there uh, probably with the same tenacity of give me the list and let's work through the list. But it had to be pretty hard to um, hear from folks during such a difficult time. Well, I mean, how, how do you balance that?
1: And I think it's one of the things that we see in higher education all the time. So the different campuses and different, different schools that have um, alumni bases, which are in different uh, sectors, in a preponderance area, uh, it can really affect uh, the stage and the, the status of the capital campaign. So coming from Houston, it was fascinating because the, the oil industry was at that time still doing relatively well. And um, uh, there were still, in the, the Texas economy um, was not impacted by the Great Recession as much as some other places. Um, in North Carolina, it was different, heavily banking. Uh, and so in Winston-Salem proper, you had Lacovia uh, um, uh, issues. Um, when you looked around uh, in Charlotte, Bank of America, um, lots and lots of different um, uh, banking challenges in the state. And then a huge alumni base was in New York City in the financial sector. So um, it was an interesting time, but it also highlighted that even in really challenging times, there are core supporters who always want to advance the mission of the institution. And so um, while you might hear, we can't do this now, you can always present the opportunities, pitch the programs, talk about where the institution is going, and then those yield incredible results in the future. And that's one of the things that, that we did there and, and we kept on track and um, it all panned out really, really well. But yes, it was a very, very interesting time. And, you know, looking back at 9-11 and then the great recession, I think it's um, uh, prepped a lot of individuals like myself who are vice presidents and vice chancellors now Um, to use those two experiences to keep teams motivated and activated during our current challenge. And um, I remember, like it happened yesterday, that week in March uh, of last year, where on Monday, I had to make the decision to pull all of our alumni events because we were going to have the A-10 basketball tournament in New York City. And on Monday, we pulled all the alumni events. That afternoon, I had a lot of interesting emails from people who were absolutely apoplectic that we we would cancel all of our alumni events. Um, By Thursday, the tournaments were literally being shut down, sometimes as games were being played, right? And then uh, by Friday, everybody was starting to announce that um, uh, schools would be um, uh, placed on an extended leave and we were moving to remote learning. So that one week was absolutely transformative and a big change. But looking back at the other two big issues, that entire week, my leadership team and I were prepping for working from home, um, helping with um, uh, alumni issues that were popping up left and right, and then um, pausing a lot of fundraising conversations as the world was, was changing rapidly.
0: I want to dive into that uh, in a bit here, Jay, but one thing you just said I want to double click on, which was this idea of uh, different institutions having different uh, exposures to different sectors and regions of the country. And one of the things that we've not really talked about on this podcast enough that struck me in one of our discussions a couple of weeks ago is this idea of, what it's like to be a fundraising professional and just getting exposure to people who are at the top of their industries at the top of their regions and how that kind of influences your own worldview. And there's a, uh, you know, longtime motivational speaker, uh, and, and, and very successful business person, Jim Rohn, who once said, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around. And I wonder if there's an element of that for the fundraisers out there who, uh, get inspired, who get ideas, who learn from their donors as they build those relationships. And and I'd love your perspective on that, especially when you think about what you learned from the Silicon Valley group that you got exposure to with the dean um, early in your career, what you took away from your exposure to the the culture and traditions around the Houston uh, oil and gas and energy sector. And then as you think about the influence of working with um, people at the top of their game in, in Wall Street, what that um, makes you reflect on as well. Does that make sense?
1: It, it does. And it's, um, it's actually an aspect that I've reflected on um, at key points in my, in my career. So, um, you know, some of this is serendipity, right? Who is assigned to you or who are the alumni or parents of an organization? But when I look back, I have had an unbelievable um, exposure to, to great leaders in, um, in oil and gas, um, energy in general, uh, some great, um, uh, lead companies in Houston. Um, and then when I was at Wake Forest, I was, um, uh, in charge of the West Coast. And so I spent a lot of time in the Silicon Valley and, and whatnot. Um, I think what happens, at least for me, um, as you're exposed to the way that uh, risk takers in those fields uh, review risk and just uh, how they handle um, their business and operational um, uh, platforms, it, it starts to rub off on you. And so I know that um, uh, the, the wildcatters, the individuals in, in the Houston oil market who were the initial oil, oil leaders in the, in the country, um, I always marveled at those folks because it was an amazing um, uh, risky venture before, you know, we knew exactly where you could plot out where oil fields were and, and whatnot. And then just the bust and boom cycle of that energy area and the um, uh, wherewithal, the, the um, uh, risk taking and just the uh, determination was fascinating to me. In Silicon Valley, what I learned was, you um, it is great to take risks, even if they're calculated risks. Um, and if you make a mistake, so what, move on quickly. And that's one of the things that I've, I've tried to share with my teams. Um, I am never going to fault you for trying something. Um, I just want you to think through, you know, how do we mitigate the challenges so that we can maximize our opportunities that, that we're, we're pursuing. And so, um, here at VCU were much, much more entrepreneurial, I think because of my Silicon Valley exposure. And um, just the other day I was watching CNBC, saw a, a great former CEO um, uh, on, on the channel and he was talking about our current economic situation. And I thought he's broadcasting from his den. I've been in that den, you know? And <laughs> it was just so interesting to, to see him again. And, um, uh, you know, hear his perspective on our current our current climate. Can,
0: can you share a little bit, we've talked a bit about Amazon and how some of Amazon's principles have shaped even how you've been challenging your team to develop new ideas and be less afraid to, you know, take risk, but take risk in a way that is uh, rooted in some real thinking and research. Uh, I, I really love some of the cross-functional work that you've been doing.
1: Oh, you know, so one of the things that's funny with, um, uh, I've read a lot of of what Jeff Bezos has done as far as organizing leadership teams and executing action. And one of the things that he said years ago, and I don't know when he said this, I I have to go back and find it. But at one point he said, no leadership team should be larger than two pizzas can feed. And I, I remember reading that and just chuckling, but I thought through, you know, why would somebody actually say that? And it's um, so that you as the leader can maintain um, uh, counsel and guidance of the team that you have, but at the same time, um, you can execute broadly and and make certain that uh, projects are being adhered to, um, but also that you're bringing in the best talent that you have um, within your organization. So when I started, um, I now only have five direct reports um, for a team that is uh, 240 people. And then from there, we have a very, very organized flow of uh, leadership for each of our units and, and our divisions. And um, what I try to utilize, going back to you know, what Darrow Zidenstine taught me, was um, uh, I formed these strategy teams, which look at a lot of our different projects and uh, challenges that we have. And um, teams of about seven to nine people analyze big areas that we need to fix or improve or study and um, bring to us an actual operating budget plan uh, to execute going forward. And so the leadership team, we pick the chairs. There's usually four or five every year that we pick. And then the chair um, will be able to organize their team uh, from a list of um, uh, folks that are across the entire spectrum of, um, uh, age and tenure. And then they tackle problems that we have. And that kind of grew out of the, um, Amazon white paper philosophy. of uh, we'll take ideas across the entire spectrum and, uh, we just want to know what's happening out there and for you to give us a game plan of action. So.
0: Jay, have there been any, um, white papers or, uh, strategy team outcomes yet or, ideas that have gone from concept to implementation, recognizing that I'm sure a lot of pivoting has happened here in 2020, but anything that you see as like an early win or an indication of momentum on that front? Yeah, so
1: one of the early ones, uh, I think this was in the very first year that I was here, um, we had a, an, a principal gift review, and uh, specifically what we were doing with principal gifts in which the uh, president or deans uh, were actively involved. And so we completely reorganized how we uh, structure and activate presidential advancement at VCU. And one of the things that we saw is in the second year, we could document directly $95 million of gifts um, uh, that were a direct result of that kind of work. And so- I mean-
0: Give us a little bit of just the before and after, right? Like there was a problem statement or an observation, an opportunity identified, a hypothesis, and boom, the results are 95 million. That's pretty amazing. What, anything generalizable there that others might want to take uh, into consideration around presidential engagement?
1: Well, you know, a couple of things that, that we did is we, we had a president who was very, very interested in being out and being more active. Um, and what we tried to do is we organized a 20-city tour in which we took our president out and introduced him to key individuals. And our um, uh, associate vice president, who was in charge of principal gifts, um, we organized a list of individuals that we knew the president wanted to spend more time with. And what we tried to do is one, just prime the pump. So we did a lot more education of those individuals about what the priorities were before the president would visit them. And then we had a communication channel that was established um, uh, to prime that pump. Um, and the, the team uh, in the strategy team organized um, a methodology of contact for the president, follow up, who in the team would follow up at key moments, how we would have a better integration of our office in the president's scheduler. So that once time was on his calendar, it never went away. Um, it was just a lot of, um, cross collaboration and looking at what was preventing our president from being out and activating as much as possible. And then how could this team come up with recommendations to eliminate it? There was a small budget that they put together. They wanted to activate uh, a different strategy and using the president's basketball box uh, during basketball season. But other than that, it was just um, a change of culture and, and how we utilize the president.
0: I love it. I also can't think of a more pre-COVID strategy than a 20-city tour with highly tailored one-on-one <laughs> engagement. So, what is the what is? I mean, now that every one of those people on that list are a Zoom link away, what does that mean for presidential fundraising this year, next year, five years from now? I feel like that could be one of the levers that is just so accelerated by everything we've been navigating.
1: Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that because uh, literally, we were we were just laughing about the. You know, the, the, um, uh, the lack of a need for a 20-city tour um, in, in the post-COVID environment. So one of the things that we're doing is um, we are setting up visits for the president with key individuals, um, some with Zoom. But we're also uh, making a list of people who are still very comfortable having face-to-face interactions and um, what we're finding is locally here in, in the Richmond area and then along the East Coast, there are individuals who are very, very comfortable in small groups gathering, whether it's for a dinner at a restaurant or um, uh, you know a smaller group interaction. And what we're trying to do is have our president still interact where it's appropriate. Um, we're finding that on the health sciences, the VCU health side, um, a lot more comfortability with that. I think the um, uh, health community has a much uh, different perspective on how to protect oneself in those kind of environments. But even on our Monroe Park, the traditional college campus um, uh, area, we have a lot of inquiries of um, uh, engagement with our president with um, small groups and then those Zoom calls, much, much more interaction along those lines. And um, we, we've even set up a whole different proposal system so that the president is able to send the proposals um, using different digital means so that uh, things are still happening.
0: No, I love it, Jay. And I even think about you know the conversation you shared around you and your dean uh, at Wright State being able to really collaborate and be aggressive and getting connected with people in the Silicon Valley and locally in Ohio at that time. And you just think about what somebody like you, a dean like that and those same prospects could accomplish today, given uh, some of the advances, not just in technology, Zoom's been around for a long time, but in uh, donor behavior and, and acceptance of that sort of technology, it's really um, exciting. And I think that's one of the areas where uh, there's, there's this debate around, you know can you replicate face-to-face experiences with Zoom, et cetera, And I think if we can weave in the dean, weave in the president, weave in experiences that we could never bring to a donor in person, um, we might be able to make the donor experience even better. Um, If we're just going to do one-on-one Zoom calls over and over with the same script that we would have had in a traditional qualification uh, meeting, that can be more efficient. But I do think that there are going to be ways to um, orchestrate a better donor experience by bringing in the coach, the athletic director, that professor, that dean, that student that felt the impact. Um, And uh, I I guess I'm curious, have you seen any wins on that front over the last couple of weeks, months, et cetera?
1: So we're we're starting to. And I think it's that um, it's the hyper customization that you can do nowadays. Right. Um, Which which is really making a difference in some of our um, interactions. For example, we, we just hired a new CEO of our health system. And um, as you can imagine, you know, when you're starting a new position, you want to make certain that you're uh, reaching out to as many prospective donors and past donors and, and meeting all of the individuals who are going to be key to the institution's success as early on as possible. Well, we've had to set up a number of those as um, digital interactions. And um, then we have a team who helps with Uh, supplying the information and and doing the follow-up so that we can continue having those kind of contacts, but at the level that a CEO of a health system needs to have uh, in the current environment that we're facing. So that's a a real life, you know, uh, ongoing challenge that we have. Um, For some of our newer deans who've started, you know, I can't imagine what they're going through, uh, starting a new position, wanting to meet as many people as possible, and then depending on the discipline, Some of our individuals are are just fine meeting, others um, uh, are maybe older constituencies who do not want to have as many face-to-face contacts. So we're helping them think through. Um, We have a new arts dean, and (laughs) uh, she has started uh, front porch visits all around um, uh, walking distance around our campus because we have a lot of folks who live very, very close and come to a lot of our performances. Um, we're fortunate. We have the number one public art school in the country. So we have a huge following here in Richmond. Um, but she's been doing a front porch tour and um, uh, it's post-COVID, but so old school, right?
0: <laughs> the front porch tour 2020 for sure. Um, well, Jay, hey, with the time remo- remaining, I've just got a few more questions questions and then we can wrap up. I'm, I'm really grateful for your perspective. But one, I always love finding out from folks not having been on the room, uh, in the room for uh, memorable gift conversations. When you think about the gifts that are most meaningful in your own development or that you really think back on fondly, anything come to uh, the,
1: the My, my first uh, moment when I, when I realized that we weren't just asking for gifts, but there was real passion and philanthropy um, involved on the donor side. I was tasked with asking for a hundred thousand dollars scholarship, and every time I'd visit this gentleman, he'd talk about the great research that his company or the, the things that he did over the course of his career that he loved. And I remember um, asking him—I think it was on the third visit—you know, Chris, we're we're doing this huge research project where we're building on a research wing. Would you be interested in that? And he said yes, but. You know, to do the whole thing, I'll have to have a conversation with my wife. And it occurred to me that, you know, we go out and we have our list and our hunches. But when you present the opportunities for folks and share with them really what their passions are, you see the intersection of philanthropy, you know, the love of humankind. And that, to this day, has been one of those magical moments for me of um, going beyond just asking for a gift. And then helping somebody really fulfill a life dream, and move an institutional priority uh, forward.
0: Can I ask Jay what the outcome was of that specific gift?
1: Uh, it's it's um, so that was at Wright State, and it's it's the Joshi Research Center attached to the Rust Engineering Building. I mean, it's incredible, um, it's incredible. An incredible facility.
0: And so, on one hand, if there is not genuine passion, right? It's all about fit, right? How do you find the mutual fit? How do you find the big idea? Um, So it was in in a certain regard. I'm hearing you say it was harder to sell this donor on the hundred thousand dollar scholarship that was not aligned with their true interest and passion than it was to sell them on literally naming a building,
1: a multi million dollar building. Absolutely, and that's that's when I realized that you know um, the um, uh, uh, the donors' motivations. Um, will always far surpass um, uh, what our needs are. Uh, and when we make that connection, that's when magical, magical gifts happen. And when I think about every big gift that I've ever been involved with, it's, it's been that. It's been something where the donor has been more passionate and uh, really found a connection point. And that's why, even with our current team, I talk to folks all the time about it's, it's important to um, uh, find out what really, really motivates an individual because at a place like VCU, there is not an idea that a donor can have that somebody on this campus is not thinking about. Between the health sciences, the health center, and our university, we have somebody who is thinking about the thing that they're most passionate about. We just have to find out if what they want to do is plausible at VCU. And when we do, um, we we, we find that uh, donors reach far beyond what they thought was um, possible because they're so passionate about seeing the the end result, whether it be a new treatment for the Massey Cancer Center, um, pharmaceutical engineering and the rebirth of bringing a lot of that manufacturing back to the United States, um, or creating an endowed chair for a professor to, to study fine arts.
0: I love that. Uh, I love that conversation, Jay. Although it's got to make you a little paranoid every time a hundred thousand dollar scholarship comes in. Do you just think to yourself, was there a naming right there that we just didn't uh, you know, find find the right fit for?
1: I love every hundred thousand dollar scholarship, but I will admit every once in a while it, it, it does cause me to have pause. Um one of the things I discovered eons ago is um, uh, at any institution, you can find out what their minimum endowed scholarship level is by simply asking, um, what was the baseline um, uh, a major gift that you received the most of in your last campaign? And you'll find that it's usually what the baseline endowed scholarship level was. And so undoubtedly, there are a lot of those conversations that could have been bigger um if we would have followed people's true passions
0: so secret of the pros just double the minimum endowed scholarship amount
1: and uh, you know
0: just start there uh, Many people try that so <laughs> yeah yeah all right hey uh, two more questions Jay one um, when you think about where this sector is over investing today, where it's under investing what what stands out to you
1: you know I think the um, uh, When you touched on the what are we doing post-COVID, I don't think we've fully analyzed and figured out what it is that post-COVID means for for everybody in every institution. Um, I I do believe that we're going to have a a different workforce look going forward. I don't know that that means fewer individuals. I do think that we're going to start to analyze um, uh, how we splice and dice our pools in a different way and um, how we spend more time with people in the mid-range of our pyramids so that we can continue to grow um, uh, opportunities forward. Um, And I think the way that we engage with individuals, because so many more people are comfortable with this kind of dialogue and this kind of interaction and this kind of meeting, I do believe that we're going to see more of this. But what we have to figure out is then how to have that personalized, um, meaningful connection. Um I'm reading a book again right now, uh, Predictably Irrational. And um, it's uh, it's a fascinating book about why people do some of the things that they do or, or irrationally do some of the things that they do. And um, it all a lot of stuff, you know is rooted in people want a personalized or personal connection. And as social beings, I still think that we're going to want to do a lot of that going forward. So, how do we do this really well, but make it um, a personal and still have that human connection? That's the trick.
0: Well, we are aligned in our interest on that topic, Jay, and I'm hopeful that we can uh, attack some of those opportunities together here. Um, I think you're spot on. And, and uh, on one hand, how can we recognize where personal interactions are not happening today, scale them deeper to more people, and then certainly leverage technology as a part of that? Uh, last question: If you could wave, wave a magic wand and change one thing about this sector, what would it be? I know you've had some thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, so um, you know the the um, I, I think the 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 aspect that's concerning to me the most is is where do we have um, fundraisers of the future? Where are they coming from? How do we um, uh, rec- recruit a more diverse candidate pool. Um, ha- how do we grow uh, talent from within? You know, one of the things that we try to do here is we're always mining our student population. Uh, we have a students today, alumni tomorrow student group um, that we we teach people about the power of philanthropy and what's happened on campus already that students benefit from each and every day that they might not be aware of. And then we also have a couple of staff members who teach a course on uh, nonprofit management, and then also fundraising within that so that we can start to identify who on campus has a passion for the institution, but also perhaps the chops to do what we do and um, uh, search for talent on campus and and groom them into uh, the next generation of fundraisers. If there is a one concern that I have, it's um, uh, who's going to do more of the frontline work um, and quite honestly, not just frontline, but all the work that we do um, uh, to be as successful as, as institutions have been in the past. Billion-dollar campaigns are not going to go away. The needs are growing, um, and how are we going to organize in the future to, to staff and have the talent pools to, to pull all of that off? Um, it's something that I literally think about each and every day,
0: As you should, as we all know, um, the right strategy, the right technology, the best data analytics, et cetera, in the absence of strong talent to go and execute on the potential, it doesn't matter. And this this is an area that just as a sector, we've got to figure out because whether it's around diversity, equity, inclusion this year, that obviously there's been a huge light uh, rightfully shined on that topic. But even five years ago, this has been such a concern for um, for uh, advancement leaders. And I just think, on one hand, you look at your student calling rooms and it tends to be an incredibly diverse group of students who understand the mission, who are selling the, the impact the same way you were selling uh, you know, in, in your undergraduate uh, experience in the admissions office. We've got to figure out a way to create an on-ramp so that that talent comes right from campus into entry-level roles that can become the tech-enabled frontline fundraisers of tomorrow, there's really such an opportunity, um, especially at a time when uh, unemployment is is high again. I mean, there's gonna be such a need for these recent graduates, 2020, 2021, to find good, meaningful work. And I just feel like this is a moment where as a sector we can solve uh, that talent uh, problem. And and I look forward to uh, diving into that with you and your team as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, Jay, I really appreciate um, your time today and perspective. If people want to stay in touch with you or learn more about VCU, I know everybody's been in a bit of a hiring freeze right now, but what's the best way? Uh, what, one other question. Is there anything our, our listeners could do to help you right now? Is there anything that uh, if you could have smart, uh, eager advancement professionals providing you suggestions, ideas, connections, um, anything come to mind? And then two, how can folks stay in touch?
1: Sure. So one of the things just um, uh, that, that's always helpful for us is, um, you know, we we're we just ended our capital campaign. We, we wrapped it up at the end of June. Uh, very successful campaign. And, and um, uh, we're starting the planning process, um, you know, for the for the next big adventure at VCU. Um, I think one of the things that's most helpful to us is, um, uh, the learning more about the scaling of events, uh, in this new world. You know, we have the advantage that we're able to scale down and not have to think about large, large events, uh, in the age of, of, of COVID. Um, this Wednesday, we're going to have our official wrap up of our capital campaign and it's a, a full virtual, uh, experience and, um, Uh, It's it's going to be remarkable, but knowing how uh, individuals are handling that with um, the promotion and the direct engagement uh, would be really really interesting from just a an educational standpoint for my team. Um, As far as the future, you know, um, we we had a hiring freeze in the beginning of this year when there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, Our enrollment management team at VCU has done a phenomenal job and so our uh, enrollment levels are actually much, much better than um, uh, what was first feared. Uh, we're, we're, we have a very, very solid class, and um, so we're coming out of that hiring freeze, and what we'll be doing is looking at um, uh, how we organize for the future, so there will be a lot of great opportunities at VCU in the future as we uh, plan for the next big adventure. Um, I love uh, talking to folks about uh, opportunities here at VCU certainly. Uh, Richmond is a draw. People love to to be in and around this area, and um, it's great being on the East Coast, um, up and down the East Coast. Great schools and uh, great talent all around us.
0: Well, Jay, it's been a ple- uh, a real pleasure to learn more about your uh, perspective on the sector, your journey, your views on leadership, and uh, and, and building a strong team. Uh, And just thank you for sharing with our audience and everybody. I would really encourage you look Jay up on LinkedIn. He's unbelievably responsive uh, and just somebody you should know uh, in the sector. So uh, without further ado, Jay, I'm going to sign off today. Thank you for joining us on the Rays Podcast. Take care.
1: Thank you.